Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. I'm Hilmarie Hutchison, and today I'm joined by David Abudunran. David is an accomplished MBA graduate with over two decades of experience in project and program management, agile transformations, human capital management, and cybersecurity. Wow, certainly a diverse background. David, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Ilmeri. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. So before we delve into your experience, can you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? I am the firstborn of a family of five. I was born in Nigeria, that's in West Africa. I had my younger years in the southwestern region of Nigeria. Firstborn, family of five. And I love to train, teach, grow, help. I mean, this is the way I was raised. My dad was an engineer, my mom a teacher and later on in life became the, the, the community ed teacher around my hometown. So how did you then get into this path that you chose? Was it through studying? Was it through experience? How did you get onto this journey? I went into secondary school called Oliver Baptist High School where I was the assistant senior prefect 1995 and then from there I went to the university, the Lagos State University, where I studied electronics, computer engineering, my first degree. Loved reading as a young person. My dad had a very large library. My reading habits picked up from when I was right about nine or ten when I used to read a lot of novels. Over the years, during my engineering, I had other kind of materials I was reading in psychology, people development, and so this shaped my worldview. Then my career started with engineering and telecommunications. After my first degree, worked in different industries all around technology, telecommunications. At some point, I had the blessing of working in the creative industry. So I have both the techie kind of work experience and, and what you call the marketing concrete industry kind of experience. Okay, and I love that you had a love of reading from a young age, and that's because your father set the example for you by having a big library himself. As a young person, I think would have certainly helped you a lot. Indeed, uh, my appetite for reading was well situated. That was your background, and then you got into your studying, and you were really interested in the technology, you said? Yes, telecommunications technology, information technology. Tell us about your journey after that. How did you get involved in such diverse fields, such as cybersecurity, agile coaching, and HR consulting? Lots of interesting things happened in my journey. First of all, I am a very curious mind. I like to solve problems. So at different points in my career, problems, real problems showed up. And in an attempt to solve those problems, I had to become different things. I don't run away from any challenge. I will try to resolve it the best way I know, which is to gather knowledge first, ask questions, and grow my skill and competency. And voila, I developed all those other skill sets and competencies as a consequence of trying to solve more problems. Uh, interesting stories. For example, as a young engineer, I discovered that we had an integration challenge among the different sub-teams between the external lifeline guy, technical engineering guys, mini transmission team, the microwave installation teams, the back office integration teams inside the exchange. That's the exchange room because I work with the Nigerian telecommunications company as a young engineer. So I noticed that there was a lot of silence 
And in my investigating what could be done, because I had the blessing of having to report weekly transmission statistics and um, service operation level reports every week. It just dawned on me that we were all talking disjointedly and in silos. And I spoke to one of my mentors who told me, have you heard about project management before when I told him the nature of the problem and how I was frustrating getting reports from the individual engineers as a young engineer. So when I spoke to him about that, he said, if I go research about projects and program management, you will find answers in trying to use that body of knowledge. That was his counsel to me. Gradually, I began to study in a period of about three to four years. I studied until I got certified as a project management professional and applied that knowledge, solved that problem. And my competence and interest grew. I moved into consulting, worked with one of the consulting big ones back home results in B5s and uh, got very strong in project and program management. The same was my story across the other areas. Problem happens, so I see an inefficiency and in a bit to combat that inefficiency, I begin to grow the competence. You could identify problems and then figure out a way to solve for that problem. What I also heard you say is that you had a mentor, somebody that you could then talk through with what the issues were to help. How did it happen that you had a mentor? Was that a intentional or did you just happen to stumble onto a mentor? Reading gives you a certain level of self-awareness. You become humble by knowing that awareness of how small you are or how inadequate you are is the first awareness that reading bestowed upon my subconscious mind. I was aware beyond words of how small my capabilities were and I needed to reach out. My dad had a lot of self-development books and positive psychology textbooks. Despite being a civil engineer himself, he had these materials that stretched your mind. Think and grow rich. Books like Tough Times Never Last But Tough People Do. I think there's a book by Reverend Dr. Newton Sidney Bremer called How to Get What You Want. Inside the book Tough Times Never Last by Reverend Dr. Robert Scula, But Tough People Do. He mentioned there that when you have a problem, learn to ask questions. And I think in that book, there's a phrase I can't forget that mentioned how to frame questions. Now, I was like probably 13 or 14 when my mind was exposed to these books. My dad also ensured in my earliest years that I read a chapter of Proverbs a day for many, many times. So it was a 30, 31 day cycle until I knew the book of Proverbs at that time in the Bible by heart. Bible verses there was in the book of Proverbs that repeats as a thing. It's about asking questions and asking people who are before you. Over the years, the exact verses have stayed stuck. For example, my son, when you go in the way, one translation that says, do not assume you know the way, for with wisdom shall your cities be established, with understanding will you establish your pathway. My dad will ask me, what do you think that scripture means? And I will explain to him. So he taught me, for example, he said, ask questions. There's a mentor. So I had word mentor from him the first time. There's a mentor. So I've been through the journey before. So the wisdom of mentorship, the word mentor stopped with me as a teenager. And then I had uh, some parts of my life, like the English language, where I was good, but I needed to learn better. So my dad got me a mentor, not a tutor or a teacher. And I remember asking him that the what was the difference between a tutor or teacher and a mentor. And he explained it to me in layman terms. So my career, I was quick to identify those people at the end. That's why his name is, the person's name is Engineer Oof Agbola. That's his name. I was one who told me about project management the first time. Your dad certainly had a 
fantastic impact on your life. Not only did he make available to you some of those classic management books on how to manage challenges, even talking to you about proverbs and how to understand the meaning of them, and then also to provide you with your first mentor. So, I mean, he certainly helped you well along on the path, which is fantastic. Let's get back a a little bit to some of your skill and your knowledge. I'd like to talk a bit about cybersecurity and cyber forensics, which I know you're an expert in. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing organizations today in protecting their digital assets? That's a very complex question to ask. The lack of awareness of the size and magnitude of the problem and the risks that the organizations are facing. That, for example, there are only two kinds of organizations, those that have been hacked and those that are yet to be hacked or attacked cyber-wise. Or let me put it this way, there are only two kinds of organizations, those that have been hacked and those that will be hacked. Just imagine you being attacked and not being aware. You know, when you are aware of your ignorance, then you begin to think about your circle of competence and then you begin to know that you're approaching the end of your competence and you now know where to ask for help. Many organizations aren't even aware, neither do they have the mechanisms to know how unaware that they are. That, for me, is the biggest challenge. If you surmount that problem, many organizations will begin the journey to cyber safety or cyber resilience. That's number one. The second big challenge that organizations have is the mismatch between budgets, cyber incidents, and sustainability of cyber safety. Let me explain. We spend money every year on servers and equipment and training programs, and yet we have not been hacked. Of what use is a budget? Why are we spending the money? It's a catch-22 scenario where, because there's no crime, we wonder whether there is the police. When there is a cyber incident or a crime, then we wonder whether the police is even working or what is this problem I'm describing many organizations face. Should we spend money and there's been no incident, meaning that your cyber team is effective or your CISO is effective? But then the interesting question is, are you sure that if I don't spend this money, I'm not safe in that ways? Why am I burning my money this way? But because your CISO or your team's expect is competent and the fact that you are safe is why you don't have an incident. Well, how told you I'm going to have an incident tomorrow? That probabilistic element, why should I throw my money? Why should I throw it at being safe when there's been no incident in the past? But that's because your money is working and your team is good. Oh, are you really sure they are good? You know, it's a big problem for many organizations. How much should they spend when they are competing business needs on being cyber safe? What should they do? That makes absolute sense. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. The biggest challenge is, number one, the lack of awareness of the scale and the impact of cyber threats. And then number two, when budgets are being spent and there is no incident, people say, well, what are we spending the budget on? Because they're not actually seeing or they're not aware of how much their efforts are protecting them, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yes. And when there's an incident, so why was there an incident when I was spending this amount of money? That's the other side of the argument. Oh, there was an incident. Oh, does that mean that um, all the money I spent, yes, there was an incident. There's a popular maxim I normally say. For example, governance, risk and compliance is not cybersecurity. I spent money doing ISO, implementing ISO 27001. How come there was an incident? Then we tell them no. 
you obeyed all the rules. It doesn't mean somebody will not attempt to break your door. Yeah, it's almost like having insurance, right? You're paying for insurance that you're hoping you'll never have to use. Thank you. You get angry after well, I'm paying this premium every month. Yeah, there's no incident. What if an incident happens tomorrow? Okay, what if an incident happens then the insurance man says, oh, you didn't obey all the rules. So CISOs, that's the chief information security officers and their teams are battling to communicate with organizations and institutions and governments about what to spend, how to spend, and you don't know where the attack is going to come from. That's another battle that CISOs face. You don't know where the attack will come from. Only thing that we definitely do know is that there's always somebody trying. There's always that risk. And those people that are trying to break through the cyber protection is always working hard to find another way to break through. Let us change direction for a bit and let's talk about coaching. I know that you've been recognized as an award-winning coach. Can you maybe start by explaining what agile coaching is? Agile coaching is a tool, an intervention, competency to catalyze or assist organizations, teams, and individuals to make the necessary changes, psycho, behavioral, cultural changes. One, competency changes. Two, process changes necessary to improve productivity and business bottom lines using Agile the correct way. That's the best way I would describe Agile coaching. Okay, it's a little hard for me to follow. I can break it down. So for businesses to succeed more, remember when I told you that challenges that brought me in the direction of multiple competencies or problems to be solved. For me, project management was working well until we delivered a product that was delivered to specification through Waterfall, which is traditional project management. But the project arrived in the market useless as built because the market desire or the market need had moved up. Agile was introduced to me as a project management or business execution or implementation model or lifestyle way of doing things that will guarantee that you don't lose value while you are developing the product, for example. Agile helps you to meet customer satisfaction or requirements faster and in time so that you have some benefits earlier on the life cycle of the project. Agile has loads of beautiful productivity advantages over traditional execution methods like the traditional waterfall model. The problem is making the shift into the agile way of life is complex. It requires cultural shifts, behavioral shifts, and process shifts. It's not the same for teams. It's not the same for organizations at the top level, at the macro level, at the meso-medium level teams, and at individual level micro. So there are macro changes, big organizational changes and shifts in culture and behavior at the middle level, which is the team level, and that's a meso level. There are behavioral changes. And at the micro-individual levels, there are also behavioral and mental shifts that need to be made for you to be successful with Agile. It's beyond, you must be Agile. Many organizations try to do Agile, they typically fall flat. You must become internally, you must achieve the psycho-behavioral changes. Now, the work of an Agile transformation coach is to help you achieve those internal muscle and behavioral shifts at any of those three levels. 
for individuals, for teams, and for organizations. Yeah, so it can be at different levels where you are assisting, as you say, individuals, teams, or organizations to make those changes. Now, what are some of the common obstacles you encounter in helping transforming traditional business models into more resourceful, adaptive structures? Let's talk about a small business. Okay, many small businesses do well with Agile, by the way, as compared to the bigger the business is, the more complex what you have in big businesses is hybrid, not agile alone. Majority of the big businesses go hybrid. But let's stay with a small business. For the small businesses, you see, problem definition is very powerful. Don't climb the ladder of success to find out that it was leaning against the wrong wall. Many small businesses, they don't have resources to make mistakes. Because of that, they misdefine problems. Typically, it's not hard. It's just that the definition of the problem is the problem. Make sure that you've defined the problem accurately. The first thing I always do is to interrogate what the small business calls its problem. Many times, for example, there are small businesses that their problem is really scale, but they think it's operational efficiency. Then they go after operational efficiency and they get efficient, and yet they don't see the results in the bottom line. But they were misled. I've been issued to define the problem as very narrow. When they should be looking for funds to scale and do higher. There are many misconceptions. And before you throw money at Agile, or Lean, or Kanban, or Six Sigma, whatever you want to do, please remember that your candidate opportunities for improvement are very lean because of financial limitations. So define the problem well and agree with everybody that that is the problem we need to solve. And because of inbreeding, you know, the blue blood syndrome. Let somebody else from the outside of you look at it. Define the problem well. Many small businesses have challenges defining the problem very well because they are looking at it from the same side. And it's a small group. The soul of the emperor is close to the last man in the mine or on the battlefield. So everybody can cling to the same causative reason and they may be making real errors and then they will spend money to solve that problem and later on they find out six months down the line that the problem that they thought was the problem wasn't the problem. I like that. So uh, very important to first understand the problem before you can even start thinking about a possible solution. That's really interesting. Listen, here, we can talk all day. You've got such vast experience in so many different fields. Let me ask you this. What advice would you give someone who is just starting out in their career? Well, set yourself very well. What do you want to become? What are the pictures you see of yourself? That's my first counsel. What is the important thing you want to do for yourself? I don't want some what makes you happy because what makes you happy may be weak in terms of economic value. And I don't want to clog the conversation, but the first one is the picture. Have a picture of your most preferred future. That's number one. Number two, think economics. Think money before you think passion. Many people will start by saying things like, you know, what's your passion? What are you really good at? And all of those things. I agree. But also remember that you would live in a world that is ruled by economics and value. So out of the many candidate opportunities around how you want to use your best self, choose the best option. So there are people who have no business starting out as a chef, and then they go start as chefs because they love cooking. But chefs are not employed in that environment. Is there another application of that your passion or those your innermost talent or another arrangement? Anyone who is a chef is meticulous. Anyone who is a chef loves serving people. Anyone who is a chef can organize menu. That means that you're someone that's detailed, 
for this after five minutes, put that after three minutes. Anyone that's a chef loves the good life. So the tourism industry generally is still good for you. The employing customer service people, hotel managers, rather than chefs, it's better for you to go for the higher economic value. The point is, don't just rush after your passion. Decompose your passion into the list of activities that make you enjoy that passionate activity. Then find other applications and economic value adding points to start from. But don't just rush blindly after your passion because it may not be economically viable in itself. If you want to rush after it, make sure you have an economic valuation plan or how you will engineer that passion into economic success. I think that's really interesting advice. As you say, normally you just hear, go after your passion. But I think, as you say, you need to understand that we live in a world where money matters. So you've got to balance that passion and find how you're going to be able to make that economically viable. I think that's very valuable advice. Thank you for sharing that insight. Now we've come to the segment of our show where I'll ask you some rapid fire questions, our version of a game show. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Can you describe the concept of organizational futurism in one sentence? It's the art, science, and gift of predicting the future of an organization based on their current realities and what they need to succeed within emergent nascent scenarios. Very interesting. Who has had the biggest impact on your journey so far? Number one is the Almighty God and my faith in God. And number two is my dad and my mom. They shift a lot of my earlier predispositions that give me the platform to do other things. What is one topic that you can talk about endlessly? For the purposes of time, let's say project program management. Okay, fine. If there was one person you could invite to dinner that you would cook for that person, who would it be? My friends in church, people of God, we share the same thing. They're the ones I would invite. Lovely. What is one thing that you do every day, no matter how busy you are? I always pray. It's difficult to catch me in 15 minutes of not communing with God. It's very important for me. Thank you very much. Well, that was the end of the game show. So that was easy enough. Thank you for playing along. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you about your green pool moment. What was your green pool moment, the action or event that was the turning point for you or your career? My mom's dad that hit me on a green pill moment. He had some biases to clear and made me to appreciate life at a certain level. So that uh, her loss and that period of time gave you clarity on issues in life. A lot of clarity. I think I had many unhealthy expectations of people. I used to depend more, believe people more. But after I did, it wasn't roses anymore. It was just life as it is. Well, thank you so much for sharing that very personal Greenpool moment with us. And thank you for being here today and sharing your fantastic story and your background and all the various things. My goodness, you've got a lot of information, a lot of knowledge about a variety of things. It's been fascinating talking today. So thank you for being here with me. And I'm sure our audience is really going to enjoy this conversation as much as I have. Before we say goodbye, could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you? And we'll also put this in the show notes. I'm available on LinkedIn, uh, David Adelia Bodrum on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and I respond to my messages. You could also find me on YouTube. I do different things, and I also encourage people in their faith. So that's also a YouTube channel for the ministry work that I do, but those are the places you can reach me. Thank you very much for sharing that. Was there anything else you wanted to share with our audience today or have we covered everything? Covered everything. Uh, for me, it's about the, the last one I'd like to say is make a mark, solve problems, help people, be kind, be good. 
Thank you very much. Again, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you all the very best and I'll definitely be following your journey. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you so much. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.